in the last session, we talked about the characteristics of the authority of Christ. Why is the authority of Christ trustworthy? How is it that it exalts nations, uh, establishes individuals, changes relationships? And when we, when we drilled into uh, the characteristics of the authority of Christ, we saw that it was light, so it brings understanding and enlightenment, knowledge, wisdom, the insights into the very nature of God, so it turns men from darkness to light. It makes us, it gives us the power to become the mature sons of God as Christ, in the standard of Christ. We also saw not only that it's light, but that it is full. It is full. There is all that is required and nothing missing. It is full of grace and truth. So it's light in the enlightenment of bringing the light of God as designed from the beginning when God said, let there be light, turning the darkness away and leaving in the place the light of knowing God and all that comes from that. It's complete, so we don't need to add anything to it. We can't supplement it. We don't have any good ideas for God as to what what He ought to do in terms of the fullness. And the fullness is of grace and truth. Now we talked about truth being intrinsically a reference to the incarnate. So the Son is the radiance of His Father's glory and the exact representation of His Father's being. God will not fail to show up in you when you're assembled to Christ. They are in me, I am in them, I am in you, you're in me, I am in them. Is what Jesus characterized it in, in uh, John 17. And so there's, uh, there's this incarnate reference to God in our persons. I know that religion has kept asserting a certain veil, put back the veil between God and ourselves, for surely we are not capable of carrying the presence of God. And that's why religion stumbles around in darkness, offering substitutes of veils in the place of being able to see face to face. Why would you ever want to accept the veilings of religion? When, when the truth, the unveiled face of God is available to you in the person of Christ, religion is the craft of the devil. It's the craftiness and deceitful scheming of the devil to put us back into the primordial darkness when light is available, full of truth, the incarnate truth. We saved out, to come back to it, the word grace. 
charis, K-A-R-I-S, in the Greek, full of grace. Now, the reason I, I separated out and wanted to address this differently is because grace refers to enablements, empowerments, to empower you. But I wanted to show that the mighty and awesome power of God that was demonstrated in creation exists to serve the desire of God's heart to have sons. So, power in the equation of the authority of Christ, power is designed to serve love, serve the requirements of love. Critically important that we make that point because in all of the pieces, uh, relational set pieces referenced in Ephesians 5 and 6, husbands and wives, fathers and sons, masters and slaves, all show power of one over another and one is told to submit to another. We dealt with the issue of mutual submission and saw that it wasn't that at all, that husbands aren't supposed to submit to wives and what, just as wives are supposed to submit to husbands. Fathers aren't supposed to submit to children as, as children are required to submit to fathers and slaves are not required, uh, masters are not required to submit to slaves as slaves are required to submit to masters. No, it's one to another. There's a, a specific other who has authority in regard to and in relationship to the one. Just like, and this is to set out the way that God rules over us in the person of Christ and we are to submit to God with not a thought that God ought to submit to us. Although, like I said, idiots have come up with, believe in a God who believes in you. That's, that's uh, shuleristic idiocy. Fortunately, we don't have to contend with that anymore. But we leave it at, we leave it at that although it did have an appeal while he was alive. The fact is that the characteristics of the power of God indicate and are the, the best points of reference to the security that we have who are called to submit to Christ as the bride of Christ. It is the it is the resting place of our security. It rests on that bedrock. Grace appears in five different forms in the New Testament. One of these forms is directly referenced when he says, he, he turns men from darkness to light. That is the grace of salvation. 
Now, the biblical principle of salvation is not about, it's not a focus on going to heaven when you die. Now, you do get to go to heaven when you die if you're in Christ, but that's not the focus of the word salvation. Salvation represents the transitioning from the being ruled by Satan to being ruled by Christ. So the grace of salvation is a transfer from one domain to another, from a domain of death and darkness and death to a domain of light. If salvation were purely an issue of going to heaven, then really you're not saved until you go to heaven. Simple enough, isn't it? Which is why some people keep insisting that you can lose your salvation because they recognize between the time you make a statement about Christ and even a water baptized as some insist is a necessary condition, to the time you die, there are plenty of opportunities for recidivism. So, so you know, it's, it's pretty apparent that salvation is not a reference to going to heaven when you die. If it were, you would not actually be saved until you died and went to heaven. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Salvation is the transfer from one domain to another, from one king to another. Now, in the process, one becomes reacquainted with the fact that before you were born and therefore before you came to Christ, there were things in God, in the mind of God, concerning you. God put you here as a designated carrier of His presence to live in creation in a certain fashion. So when He saves you out of the one domain, brings you into the other domain, He re-engages His original intent for your creation because now you're subject to His rule whereas before you were not. Now that you're subject to His rule, He means to conform you, or rather He means to reconcile you to that for which He foreknew you. So the first grace this is power to do it and there's no, there is no strength or power in any entity in creation that can prevent God from doing this. That's what grace is, full of grace. The fullness of the grace of salvation means when God decides to transfer you from under the control of Satan to the control of the Son of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what objection Satan raises, by whomever he raises this objection, it cannot prevail against you. 
the grace is full. So the grace of salvation is a fullness of grace. Then the grace of reconciliation. Now reconciliation is um, it's an accounting term. It means that a certain status previously existed from which you've fallen and to which now you're going to be repatriated. So the grace of reconciliation presumes a prior intent. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I know it's common for evangelicals to say, you know, give me your hand, give God your heart, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's only that's true in a most basic way. It's not a generic wonderful plan for your life. It's not good things wait for you in a general sense. No, it's a very specific way that God created you to live in you. So you have characteristics that might be irritating to other people, but those characteristics are part of the supply God gave you. Now, you may have to learn to discipline those characteristics to be consistent with the character of God. But sometimes the reason you are the way you are, even in an unregenerate state, is evidence of how God means to live in you. For example, if you're prophetic, it wouldn't do for you to be an easy pushover. You'd have to be a little bit um, insistent because of the pushback that goes with the prophetic voice of God speaking out of a vessel. On the other hand, one would hardly think you are merciful if you're always argumentative. But if you're to carry the mercy and compassion of God, you will have a certain grace to absorb uh, extraordinary uh, punishments in the form of verbal pushback while being undeterred in getting to the center of a person's being, the person you may be talking to. So mercy may make you appear to be uh, easily manipulated by circumstances around you, but the truth is it takes more courage and self-sacrifice to be merciful than say it is to be prophetic, if that is the primary way God chooses to live in you. Now we, we all have distributions of many of these graces and we even have distributions of primary graces because who we are was foreordained by God and God gives us personal characteristics that go hand in hand with the effective functioning of 
the grace that God has given us. So when we are saved, the Holy Spirit takes over these characteristics we have and begin to smooth them out, begin to to polish them, change them so that we may function in a mature fashion as we carry the presence of God. So the second grace, and there's a fullness of that, God will do it. He who calls you is faithful and He will do it. Now He will not do it today or tomorrow, He won't do it in one pass, so don't be distressed if God seems to be dealing with you over and over again about the same thing. He's not dealing the same way with you every pass through. He's touching something else, something deeper. And when it's done, in that regard, meaning in the way He designed you to carry His presence, you will manifest the excellence of Christ who was the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And people will see Christ in you clearly in a mature representation of that gift. So you have the grace of salvation, the grace of reconciliation. Then there's the grace of conformation where God conforms you to that standard. Reconciliation is identifying what the gift is together with the characteristics. Confirmation is the baptism of fire. It's the methodology by which He brings you to the standard. So if you're going through that, the grace is full to do it. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. God is working against the background of you being the light of the world. Christ in you, being the original light of the world, now shines through you. So people will see the goodness of God in your face. There is no possibility that this will fail to occur because there's no lack in the grace to accomplish it. So as the expression goes, hang in there. I've noted that God has had to go over uh, what seemed like the same ground with me many times, but every time I see something else, I see something more. Every layer of veiling that He removes from from my spiritual eyes allows me to see with greater clarity the thing that had been hidden before. So don't lose heart. This is God's process. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Uh, When God is dealing with you, it's because He loves you. Whomever He receives as His Son, He will discipline. And this this is the grace of His discipline. It's It's not meant to be purely punitive, although it is meant to be refining. Refinement is not punitive. Refinement is in the anticipation of being revealed. If you stay the course, I know that in due season, Christ in you will be revealed to His luminous, to the standard of His luminous brilliance, 
And at times, family members and people who have known you from the past will be stunned by the new creation on display in your body, in your person, and upon your face. Such is the grace of conformation. He conforms you to the standard of God as revealed in the person of Christ. So he, he conforms you having reconciled you, having saved you. Then he, he puts on display in a mature fashion the, what you have become. This is the grace of exact representation. When you have become the standard of Christ, when Christ has been formed in you fully, you are the exact representation. And if they see you, they will see the Father. If they see you, they will see Christ. Perhaps the final of these stages of grace is possessing the fullness of the authority of Christ, carrying the presence of Christ in the fullness of His authority. That's when what you say is God speaking. That's the grace of being the complete representation of God Himself in your person, through your person. Now, the fullness exists for all of these things, from being saved to being the demonstrated presence of God in power in the earth. This is very, very different than men and women who have acquired power by the strength of their resources and their own capabilities, by their ways of maneuvering and and positioning themselves in the world and in the earth. In that form, of governance and in that form of power, there's no room for anyone but themselves. And yet, Christ stepped back, indeed stepped up, went to heaven so that we might step into His place. He has entrusted his representation. He's entrusted what he came to earth to do, to be the light of the world. He's entrusted the continuing representation of that to us in all the forms of our relationships. So, to summarize, what then is the role of the husband in regards to the wife? It is to put on display fully the love of God. For the mandate is, husbands love your wives 
as Christ also loved the church. The role of the husband is to demonstrate the love of God. The role of the wife is to demonstrate the obedience of the church, of the body of Christ, to the husband. You can't pull one aside and say, we put that over here, and but this is the one that we want to emphasize. No, it's both. The husband should love his wife in this self-sacrificing way that we have described. The wife should obey the husband in this fashion of clothing herself with the authority God gave to the husband for her covering. So when the woman is acting under the authority of the husband in the marriage, she's not responsible for the outcome, he is. But she has all the prerogative that the power that he has will allow. Now, this is not the limitation of the role of a woman. A woman may have power in politics, a woman may have power in business, a woman may have power in any undertaking that Christ in her would lead her to, but it's all under the oversight of a husband and demonstrating the submission of the husband. None of this makes the woman inferior. All of this empowers the woman. The father-son relationship. The father raises the son to understand who he is to become when he's a father by modeling the character of God the Father as put on display in the person of Christ. So the father doesn't discipline children in anger, Um, the father doesn't use his children for his benefit, it's unthinkable that the father would abuse his children. These are entirely inconsistent messages with the representation of God. I know that in, in churches now, I mean the other day uh, the, the, the commission in France gave a report that, some, that more than 200,000 children were sexually abused by the French Roman Catholic clergy and more than 3,000 of the clergy, the priests and workers in authority did this. Listen, there's no way to stretch the imagination to make this to be of Christ. This is corrupt. This is not a few bad apples in a barrel. This is a rotten barrel. Why do you think why should, why should it be continued to be excused? No authority here represents Christ. This authority that abuses is demonic. It's not of Christ. You can't rescue 
this and make it into something else. This is perverse in the extreme when you consider that the standard is for the fathers to model the character of God. I have much more to say uh, on the role of the father as in, the author- in having authority as one who represents God the Father and I haven't touched really the role of the master and the slave or the master and the servant but all these are the forms of divine, in, all these are the relational forms through which divine authority flows. Now this all empties out into, first it's preceded by our glorious inheritance uh, as Paul addresses it in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Here in the fifth chapter, sort of the staging area looking at the relationships that are affected by this divine authority flowing through Christ for the benefit of the church, these are the primary relationships identified in the church and then it will flow over into how we defeat and destroy the enemy when we're clothed with the authority of Christ. And that would be a series coming up entitled The Armor of God. But it all flows in one continuous flow through the book of Ephesians. I'm Sam Solon. I'll continue to finish up the some, I'll give more examples of the husband-wife relationship and then I'll proceed into a more intense look at the father-son relationship and then I'll finish up with a discussion of the master-servant relationship. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you then. Bye-bye.